On episode 302 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn about the most important tennis fitness training principles with Dr. Mark Kovacs. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey, and welcome to another episode of the show. I hope you're doing well and playing a lot of tennis and improving your tennis game. I've been playing a lot more since the summit concluded a few weeks ago, and I've been playing in USCA leagues, well, actually more so a league in Arlington, you know, not too far away from me, but a decent drive. But yeah, I had a match um, this past weekend that was really good, really back and forth affair. Uh, my partner, Ben and I, who I was actually called David for the first like hour and a half <laughs> until a teammate told me about my mistake. We played really well. We played against two tough, I think, four or five players. I'm not sure if any of them were 5-0s. But yeah, we ended up winning 7-5, 4-6, and then third set tiebreak 10-8. And yeah, we just, you know, stuck with it, had a good first set, and managed to break near the end. And then second set, um, they broke us, I think, early. And then third set, yeah, we just played clutch, especially my partner, Ben, he wanted me to mention on the podcast about a down-the-line slice backhand winner at, I think, 7-all, which was amazing. And the point before that, he hit a lunging uh, lob winner. So yeah, just really, really fun match and just glad to get the win. It was pretty interesting. I played um, two Chris's, one of the Chris's who I had played many times before, and he's a very good player. But yeah, just... Kind of lucky, you know, the last point um, on serve. I took some deep breaths for sure, you know, tried to use some of the techniques that I've learned over my interviews and summits and whatnot and worked out, you know, I was able to get a serve in there and, you know, the return went in the net, which was kind of a relief. But yeah, so, you know, just a little summary of what's been going on with me. But yeah, I've just been training, trying to improve my serve and I'll get more reps, you know, as as the more reps that I get, the better I play. So I'm just more of a, that type of player. I'm not one of those who can just go out there and, um, you know, not play for a week and just play amazing. Need to get the feel going. But yeah, um, I mean, one thing that's been really crucial to uh, my success has been my tennis fitness. And I did a, a really fun live stream with Dr. Kovacs recently, Dr. Mark Kovacs who, uh, if you don't know about it, I mean, you must know about him if you've <laughs> been listening to um, me at all recently. He, uh, Dr. Kovacs, is a performance physiologist, researcher, professor, author, speaker, and coach with a, a, an extensive background training and researching elite athletes. He's trained many top professional tennis players, including John Isner, Sloan Stevens, Sam Querrey, Donald Young, Melanie Dean, so many others as well. Uh, and uh, Dr. Kovacs has founded the Kovacs Institute and the International Tennis Performance Association, 
He was also, I think, the senior director of sports science for the Cleveland Cavaliers. So it's just so impressive how you see the the crossover that um, Dr. Kovacs was just so good at his craft that uh, an NBA team decided to take him to to lead them in that area. So really cool stuff um, with this this uh, live stream that we did. It was uh, it's mainly a Q and A where we got a bunch of questions from the audience, and so. I brought that forth for you because I think it's particularly effective to listen to the questions from the audience, which I read out, and then have them answer because oftentimes these questions are your questions. Um, so I think you'll benefit from them. So a lot of great topics on this one, including how we should adjust our training when we have physical limitations, which applies, especially as you get older, how to develop power that transfers to your tennis game, how to n- modify fitness drills for senior players, uh, explosive training drills, the best recovery methods, and a lot more. So really hope you enjoy this episode that's uh, primarily focused on tennis fitness with Dr. Mark Kovacs, one of the best in the biz. So without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Mark Kovacs. Uh, one question for you, uh, Mark, is how should we adjust our training when we have physical limitations? Because that's a, a frequent question that I get in, in my surveys and emails. Uh, um, you know, we do the, you know, 40 plus population and, you know, the, they have injuries or, you know, the mobility is lacking, things like that. I mean, I have that myself even, you know. So uh, what are some principles to keep in mind there? Yeah, so it doesn't matter what level of player or what age you are. Um, physical limitations exist for everyone. You just may not see it as obvious it, with, with, say, the pros. But even at the professional level, very few professional players are able to do every exercise or every movement at the volume that you would like them to do. So you have to work around a lot of different things. So in general... You know, you start at the most obvious. If there's pain, you avoid. You definitely don't want to push through anything that causes pain. That's sort of step one. Um, If there's no pain, but there's, say, weakness or limitation in range or something like that, then your question is, should you be training that to improve that strength weakness or that range of motion limitation? And that is a discussion that you have to have usually with a knowledgeable professional who can guide you a little bit on, is this something that will actually make you better by getting that range back or getting that extra strength? Or is there something causing it that you may actually not want to push to that point because it actually may do more harm than good? So it all depends on what your limitations are. Typically, I always recommend players get a very good um, fitness screen or fitness testing battery to figure out where are you as a player? This usually covers strength, flexibility, agility, mobility, and these factors that can give you a sense of where you're strong and where you're weak. So think of it as a you know SWOT analysis or even a gap analysis, like maybe done in sort of business settings. You're trying to figure out where you are today, where do you want to be in three months, six months, a year, and where how do you want to close that gap from where you are to where you want to be. But in general, most of the time when people talk about physical limitations, they know what's going on. They have a knee pain, they have shoulder pain, they've had surgery and they can't do what they used to be able to do. And in those situations, you do what you can do, work around them, try to make sure that if you are favoring something, let's say if you're 
elbow hurts a lot and you can't hit as many, say, backhands as you're used to because the elbow hurts on the backhand, then you've got to figure out how do I either rest for a few weeks to let it heal, get some some rehab on it, get some treatment, and hopefully in a few weeks it heals up so that you can actually do everything full strength. Or if it's something that you know may not fully 100% recover, it may be post-surgery and you just are never going to get the exact full range back or strength back, then you maybe have to work a, around it. And we have a lot of different ways we deal with workarounds, meaning if you have limitations, you may avoid certain things, whether it's in the gym, whether it's on the court, you may just not do that thing that causes problems. But long-term, the goal ideally, like with most people, is to fix the causes of some of these problems and try to strengthen and create range that you can then do hopefully everything in the future. Yeah, yeah, great stuff, uh, uh, Mark. And we do have some questions streaming in. Uh, just say hi to a few people. Hey, Pete, uh, looking forward to the summit. Thanks so much. Awesome to hear that. Peter, greetings from Canada. Um, greetings to you as well. Lucas, hello. Nice to see you there. Uh, we have a couple questions that have come in. I want to ask this one more for now, and then we can turn to some fan questions, uh, audience questions, that is. But, and, you know, you do have a fantastic uh, presentation. I mean, I say that because I've seen it already uh, on uh, the biggest tennis fitness misconceptions, which you won't want to miss. It'll be out on Saturday. And so it's so awesome to have Mark here on again today with this Q&A. But what is the key to developing power that transfers to the tennis court because you, you know you talked some you know about this in your presentations I don't want to ruin it too much but it's just about you know I think we're not really sure you know exactly what we should be doing like when we think of power we might think of the Olympic lifts and things like that or you know, squats and things but what is tr- truly the key to developing power that will apply like into your tennis game Yeah, no, power is one of those elusive terms that are thrown around a lot, and many times people misuse the term. So we have to first define what we're talking about. When we say power, um, in the traditional sense, when you're defining the word power, it's really force divided by time. So it's how much force can you produce in the shortest amount of time. And the more powerful you are, that means that your force is being produced very quickly. So to do that, you have two ways to do it. You either shorten your time or you increase your force. Ideally, you want to do both. Increase your force while shortening your time. So one is a speed metric, which is the time metric. How quickly can you do something? And the other is a strength metric, which is the force aspect of it. So both, if you want to get really powerful on the tennis court, you have to get stronger, which is the force metric. And you have to get faster or use that force quick, quicker than you're used to. So you're trying to develop power through both ways. Some people are more genetically predisposed to being faster. So they're quicker, but maybe they have less force production. Other people are really good lifting heavy weights, but may not necessarily be as good with the quickness side. So typically you have to evaluate yourself to figure out, am I more a force focused person, which most people know they like to lift heavy weights. Um, The people that don't like to lift heavy weights, lifting heavier weight will actually help you the most. So the people that don't like to lift heavy, those are the people that more than likely will get the biggest benefit from lifting heavy. 
So that's always the case. Usually the stuff you really don't like to do is probably going to give you the biggest return on your time if you actually do it. So that's sort of to set the stage on power. But practically speaking, the drills that we like to use the most are tennis-specific power-related drills. And those many times involve either bands or cable machines where you can do rotational movements at a very fast pace with some pretty good resistance. So the goal is to move weight quickly in usually rotational movements similar to a forehand or a backhand stance and trying to move some weight. And then sort of the go-to best practice power movements are with medicine balls usually where you can catch a medicine ball which helps with your deceleration or stability which has to be there if you want to develop the power because you need the base of support before you can release it and then the release stage is usually when you throw a ball um, and that's truly the the power producing aspect of the motion so we have to store energy before we can release energy just like in a forehand or a backhand we have to load before we can explode so the loading is the storing of the energy and the exploding is the releasing of the energy. And the more we can release the energy, the more power we're going to get. So the goal with all of this type of training is not how much weight always you can lift, but how quickly can you move the weight that you are lifting. Thanks, Mark. So so you see some some people in the gym who are doing you know, like slower sets and, you know, obviously there's a principle of time under tension, things like that. So, so maybe that's why, you know, they do it. And I guess hypertrophy and, and things like that, it could help with, but I mean, for tennis players, would you recommend that we generally not do that unless we're in a, some sort of, you know, a different phase, uh, maybe like a muscle building phase? Yeah. So it's a great question. So it depends on what you're trying to accomplish at the phase that you're working in general, slow control lifting is valuable because you get muscle recruitment. Uh, you get, like you said, time under tension. So you're loading the uh, affected muscles, usually for a longer period of time, which causes more muscle recruitment, which allows for uh, strength gains to be had with possibly some muscle hypertrophy, which are all valuable at certain times throughout a training cycle. However, if you only do that, that limits your ability necessarily to develop power on the court because you're not training fast at all. If the only training you do is hit tennis balls and lift heavy weights in the gym, you're going to get some transfer from that heavy weight training because you're getting stronger, but you're not going to get the maximum output for a tennis player if you only lift heavy in the weight room with a lot of weight under time under tension and do it slow versus someone that may do a third of their workout like that in the weight room, you know, a third or in the weight room where you're sort of looking to move the weight relatively quick. And there's a lot of great studies out there talking about you may still lift heavy weight, but if your intent is to move it quickly, you get that power response or that ability to get the benefit of that training even though if to an outsider, it may still look like you're moving the bar relatively slow. If the intent is to move it quickly with heavy weight, you get really, really good outcomes uh, from a power producing perspective. However, we have to also be a little careful anytime you use very heavy weight or heavy weight and you try to move it relatively quickly, 
you do increase your risk of uh, of potential uh, issues. Not necessarily always injury, but it just you have to be an experienced lifter. You have to make sure that if you're using heavy weight with certain exercises, that you have a spotter to help you if you get in trouble, things like that. So that's more of an advanced training concept for the people that are pretty experienced. And for most of the people I work with, that's what we do a lot of because we're working with that person that, you know, a 1% improvement uh, could be millions of dollars. So they have to really go to that edge of performance. Uh, But like we know, anytime you go to an edge of anything, you have to be more careful because if you do too much or do it the wrong way, you may fall over the edge. And that's something that we definitely don't want to be doing. Yeah, definitely. Very wise words, uh, Dr. Kovac. So about, let's see, like six or seven questions here already. So that's fantastic. So one of my favorite drills that I love doing actually is the MK drill. And Neil has a question about it. How should drills like the MK drill be modified for the 60 and over player? Yeah, great question. So so for the folks that are familiar with this drill, this is done on a tennis court, very simple to implement. You go from the doubles line on one side of the net to the doubles line on that same side of the net and back. So you you, you sort of run, you try to sprint as fast as you can um, for your level. Uh, and if you go down and back for a professional player, that may take about five seconds to complete down and back. For someone in this example who may be over 60, that may take eight seconds or nine seconds or 10 seconds to complete, depending on your your level. So that is considered one, the first set, down and back one time. So the way this works, it's sort of a waterfall approach where you go up and then you go down. So you go up a certain number of sets and then you come down. In the way it was designed originally for elite uh, collegiate and professional players, it was six sets up and six sets down. So the sixth set would take a pro about 30 seconds to complete. Someone who is a lot older and maybe not as fast, it may take them 45 to 50 seconds to complete. So my suggestion for that is, depending on your level, it's not always about the age on this drill. It's more about physically where your comfort zone is. So in general, and we do this with some junior players as well that may not be in great shape and just starting out, we usually start with three sets up and three sets down. So that's down and back from doubles line to doubles line and back three times. And if they can do that in a session and recover well and feel good about it, then you take it to four sets. And maybe the following week you try five sets. So you sort of build up to it. So there's nothing wrong with the movement because if you're playing tennis, you should be able to do the MK drill. There's nothing about the movement that is um, significantly difficult it's just running down and back so if you're playing tennis you have to run that distance in a tennis point so there shouldn't be any limitations there you may be slower than you would like and you may fatigue sooner than you would like but you can build that up over time awesome um uh, dr kovacs uh, keep switching between mark and dr kovacs but i uh put a, a link in here actually from uh, kovacsacademy.com regarding the mk drill so definitely would want to check that out and i guess you know with mk drill obviously it's you know it's sprinting does it make any sense at all to modify it to be any other different footwork like lateral movement do you ever do that with your uh, students yeah we'll do variations all the time so we'll do x drill variations of that 
uh, we'll do uh, lateral shuffles. We'll do lateral shuffles with front crossovers at the corners at the, or at the turns. So we'll use this from a drill standpoint many, many different ways. So again, this was designed as a fitness test originally. So that's where it sort of got its use case and the normative values and things like that. But from a training um, series of exercises that you can progress and regress and focus on different areas, yeah, there's a lot of ways to adjust it. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Let's see. Lou Cass, do you recommend any websites or resources that have fitness tests? I have an idea, but uh, Mark, what do you think? Yeah, no, no, there's there's, there's, a, there's a few different ones. So um, the ones that I've been involved with are the Tennis Fitness Combine, which we sort of put together five, six years ago, which was really designed for people that were looking to test themselves. And there's a whole series of tests on, you know, um, some basic uh, agility, s- speed, strength, you know, range of motion, very easy to do, low cost, no real equipment needed, except sort of a stopwatch and a couple tennis balls. So you, you that's very, very easy, simple to do. Uh, it's called the, the Tennis Fitness Combine. Um, and you're really valuable, easy resource, low cost way of doing it. Uh, then also, if you want to look at some other options as well, Complete Conditioning for Tennis is a resource out there that has a number of different tests. Some of them may require a little bit more equipment. Um, and those both require relatively um, low cost and low sort of um, requirements to perform. We do some tests at our institute that require pretty expensive equipment where we're trying to get at very accurate, precise metrics on some range of motion stuff, some force producing concepts or things like that. But to be honest, most people probably don't need that level of accuracy. You want to know uh, what ballpark do you fall in? Are you in really good shape for this activity? Are you in moderate shape? The beauty about the tennis fitness combine is it comes with all the normative values for different ages and different levels. So you can kind of see where am I today? Where is a pro in comparison? Where is the best sort of level at my sort of standard? Um, and then you can set, you know, goals for yourself to improve based on various exercises that you can do to improve that. Awesome. Th- thanks a lot, Mark. And I think I put the, oh, I was trying to put the link to your book in there, but we'll, we'll, um, we'll get those on your other page as well. So that's, that's awesome. Thanks for those resources. Really, really great ones. Uh, let's see, Leslie, hey, from Tampa, excited to hear from Mark. Definitely, uh, Leslie, good to see you. She was um, at the camp with Gigi Fernandez a couple weeks ago. Uh, super fun at Innisbrook, and great to see her again. Uh, Dan, Mark, I am a high school coach. Would love your suggestions for running at the end of practice. Okay, so great question. So for all the high school coaches, you know, that, or, or college coaches as well, they have the same challenges sometimes. Um, when you've got a team setting, should you do conditioning at the end of practice or not is the question I would ask first. I would say, can you can we get a lot of the conditioning done maybe via hitting tennis balls? Do like a 50-ball drill at the end of practice where they're running side to side. A lot of players enjoy that more than just running. But there's also some really important benefits of running for the sake of you know, mentally you know, focusing on a task for a period of time, you know, what I always say, it depends on the level. So 
If they're serious tennis players, I always say you should be able to run three miles if you want to be a really high-level tennis player. And we, if anyone knows me, you know I don't talk about long, slow-distance running is very valuable for tennis athletes. It's not a major core aspect of programming for what we do because we know there's better, more efficient ways to get results. However, you know, three miles for a high school athlete is going to take them between 15 and 18 minutes, depending on their level, hopefully. So it's not a huge amount of time. So that's a very simple exercise to do. Unfortunately, many high school players can't even do that anymore. Like 25, 30 years ago, pretty much every high school tennis player could do that. Nowadays, you don't see as many being able to even finish that without stopping. So that's kind of step one to a lot of the things. But in general, we do most of it on court and we'll use things like the MK drill. We'll do variations on that. And most of the time, how we like to do our tennis-specific endurance work is we'll use work-to-rest ratios. So normally it's about a one to three work-to-rest ratio. So think of it this way. If you do 10 seconds of running, you would do 30 seconds of resting. So that means your running needs to be at a pretty high pace. So most of the time we work up and down a cycle, say from 10 seconds of work to 30 seconds of rest. And then we would work up to 30 seconds of work with potentially 90 seconds of rest. And you would work back and forth in that ratio. And that allows you to get a pretty good workout in a relatively short amount of time that is somewhat tennis specific in nature. 10 seconds to 30 seconds, that's about the majority of long points in tennis don't get much longer than 30 seconds in the high school's level. It may be a lot less than that. You don't get many points that even go 10 or 15 seconds. There's a lot of errors, obviously. So, but somewhere in that range is pretty good. And for a limited time, like high school, a 15 minute workout, maybe a 20 minute workout is about all you're going to probably get at the end of practice. So something like that can work really well. And then you could mix up what type of splits you could do you know we, we we do a spider drill which is anywhere from 15 to 20 seconds depending on the level so that's a five ball pickup sometimes it's called and that's on the tennis court and you're running in in different directions um and that allows you to really get a lot of bang for your buck because you do change of directions they have to bend down they have to come up they have to be agile, they have to change directions rapidly, and they have to maintain balance. So you can get a lot done in a pretty short amount of time. Awesome. Th- thanks a lot, Mark. So let's see. Snowy, great session. Any suggestions for training explosiveness on the serve off court other than medicine balls? Yeah, so that's a really, really good question again. Uh, with the serve, there's there's a few different aspects one is we want to train the legs to get explosive power and when we're talking about that is we're talking about the ability to quickly change from storing energy which is on the way down to exploding which is on the way up so if you're doing a jump for example the down phase is less important than the up phase meaning that we want to make sure that we're going down but it's the transfer of going down to going up that we have to make sure we're emphasizing. So that's the explosiveness. And always like to do a lot of single leg jumps, more so than double leg, because in tennis, as much as you think it's a two-legged movement to serve, it's really two separate legs working together 
but they're transferring energy ideally from the back leg into the front leg. Um, so the back leg is more important for the majority of the motion before the front leg gets whatever the back leg is allowing it to transfer to. So jumping from the lower body is really important. The other really good one is working on some explosive movements from the upper body as well. So that could be a shot put movement. So we do quite a lot with sort of weighted balls, a, a one pound or a two pound ball is really good to do sort of a shot put movement where you shoot, uh, pushing the ball up and out in the direction like you would with the serve. So you're really trying to get that lower body involved, but then explosively pushing with the upper body. Um, so those are some two pretty good ones. The, then, although this is not truly an explosive exercise, making sure that you've got appropriate range in your thoracic spine, specifically thoracic extension, can allow you to get a little bit more range with your upper body so that all the explosiveness that you're developing actually goes through the right locations and you can get a little bit more stored energy in the upper body that can release into the ball. So that'll give you a little bit more of that live arm concept that a lot of people want to get. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. We have a lot of questions streaming in um, per usual with you. <laughs> uh, Sparks guy. Hey guys, uh, between playing and cross training days, there never seems to be enough time for recovery. Should rest days be sitting around or be more purposeful? Um, I'm 66 and playing singles more than doubles. Great. Awesome to hear you're still out playing a lot of singles, which is great news. Um, so this question is a very personal response. It really depends a lot on your physical capabilities, on how you feel, um, you know, monitoring your sleep, um, things like that dictates how often you should take sort of complete rest days. I usually don't recommend too many complete rest days. That's not normally the best way to recover. Usually a form of active recovery um, is better than just passive. Passive recovery is sitting on the couch all day and watching Netflix. That's probably not the most preferred way of recovering. Usually it's you know, going for a mile or two walk, getting the blood. Blood flow is one of the best ways to help recovery. And there's a lot of ways to do it. You can do active blood flow treatment, which would be, say, walking, things like that. You can do passive treatments, which are electrical muscle stimulators. You can use pneumatic type um, compression devices, which is like, you know, Normatec boots or recovery pump boots or things like that. You can use temperature to help with blood flow. So that would be a hot tub or a sauna. Uh, or a steam room. So all of those are forms of recovery because they all have one big thing in common, which is helping with blood flow. So if you like to play a lot and you feel pretty good, your body wakes up each day and you feel reasonably good, that doesn't mean you should not play or not do activity. You just may want to do a little bit more recovery type treatments at the end of days to help your body recover a little bit more for the next day. So sounds like things are working pretty well it sounds like you may be able to incorporate more sort of active type recovery activities or blood flow specific activities that can help also if you've got the resources getting some you know body work um once or twice a week is really valuable like that can be through a physical therapist or a really good massage therapist that can really 
kind of go at those problem areas and everyone has those problem areas it's those areas that always sort of tighten up more than others it could be the lower back it could be the hamstring could be the calf and just getting that worked on with a competent professional can really make a big difference with this entire process yeah it's funny mark i used to you know if i had a, a couple of matches in a day i would just do nothing, and then I would wonder why I was still sore. And, and the only time it would go away was when after I would do an activity again. So really <laughs> key that you you do some form of activity, you know, light light stuff, you know, the next day, as you mentioned. Um, and uh, you know, you mentioned a lot of different ways to to accomplish that on your rest day. Would would also Theragun be considered? Yeah. So so Theraguns or the percussion therapy. There's quite a few companies now that have that. A lot of that is psychological, like it's mm-hmm. getting. It's 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 creating this sensation um, that sort of numbs the area a little bit, so you feel better immediately using it, which is not a bad thing at all. There's a lot of techniques that utilize something similar. It's hey, how do we make that discomfort go away quickly, and this is a way that can make you feel better. Um, but you have to then address what's causing that. It doesn't actually fix a problem. It's similar a lot to foam rolling as well. A lot of people like to foam roll and it usually doesn't fix a problem. It makes it feel better for a short period of time, which is good. It's a, it's a strategy, but there should probably be something else that you do in addition to that to try to address the cause. It could be you need to strengthen an area more. You need to create more range in an area more. You may need to eat a little bit better meaning that you need more protein in your diet or you need to maybe get some blood work done to see are you deficient in certain mineral that is causing you to feel sore than you should or certain things not recovering as quickly as they should. Because there's a lot of factors that cause some of this. It's not as simple as this is tight or this is weak. It could be nutrition. It could be, and a lot of the time it is, genetic predispositions to certain things that you may not even realize that is caught you're eating something that is actually not uh, appropriate for you and if you can figure that out and maybe remove that from the diet you can feel a lot better mm, it's very eye-opening stuff yeah that, that's great um thanks mark uh lucas i want to learn how to slide on hard court on my backhand side so i can do open stance sliding backhands any tips on exercises drills i can do to get good at it yeah, so it's a great question. Again, I don't know your age or level or anything like that, so it's hard to give um, a clear response. But with pretty much every high-level junior, collegiate, or professional player I work with, nearly all of them slide somewhat into certain balls on hard courts. So it is quite common now. In general, you don't teach a hard court slide like you teach clay court sliding. Clay court sliding is specific technique about where you position your toe, where you put the pressure on the ball versus the middle of your foot. Uh, So there is some real clearly defined technical work that you do on clay court sliding, especially at young ages, to teach people how to do it. So we spent quite a bit of time teaching that. On hard courts, honestly, what you do is you put yourself in those positions where you need it, meaning you've got to take time away from yourself when you're practicing that it forces you in a way to do that. So you have to obviously be careful because you you want that to be sort of a natural looking movement. If you try to force it, yo, bad things can happen sometimes. But in general, 
The reason you slide is because it's a time benefit. You can get there and load while you're still moving into the shot and hitting through it, just like you would on a clay court. So the premise is the same. However, you better make sure you have really good stability through that outside leg. So if you're a right-hander trying to slide into your backhand, that's going to be your left leg that you're going to load into. So you better have good hip strength, good leg strength in that wide open stance position before you even attempt it. So that would be my suggestion is make sure you're training off court appropriately in that open stance. Make sure your adductors are strong. Make sure your glute strength is strong um, and that you can easily decelerate into that left leg because that's really what's happening when you're sliding on hard courts. You're having to decelerate you know, through a position and you've got to make sure that you have the stability to do that. And, and again, it depends on the age here because if you're young, it's one thing. The older you get, this would not be a great strategy. Uh, it would be better to just try to get a bit faster and get yeah. in position as best you can. Yeah, I was going to say, Mark, I honestly, I can't recall anyone in their late 30s or higher who I've seen ever slide on hard courts. I, I, I can't remember one. I mean, obviously, maybe some pros like or, or you know, semi-pros or whatever, but yeah. That's, that's good advice there, obviously. A lot of questions coming in, just like last year. Um, Peter, why do tennis pros also have wrist or elbow injuries? They know the exact techniques and how to do the fitness accordingly, yet they still get injured. What's the root cause? Great question. So you bring up a couple interesting components here. So professional players don't always have perfect technique. Very few actually have perfect technique. They have good technique many times but they're so talented and gifted and they've hit so many balls many times that they've adapted poor technique to be relatively successful. So that's one thing. Many of them don't actually have perfect biomechanics. So that's a many times a cause of some of these wrist and elbow injuries, especially in the wrist injuries that we see. A lot of them are due to some, some less than efficient technique. So that's one aspect. And then Unfortunately, many of them don't necessarily train perfectly off court. They're either getting advice from people that may not know the sport that well. So they have them doing a lot of things that can sometimes be actually hindering them rather than helping them. Um, you would think they're the best athletes in the world. They'd hire the, the, the most competent, professional, best expert people they can find. Some do, obviously. But many don't, and there's a number of reasons for that. One is they don't know any better. Two is it's a cost. Good people are expensive, like in all sports, and sometimes the cost is prohibitive because they already have a coach. They may have um, a physio traveling with them as well, and getting a trainer who's really skilled could be an extra expense that they may not be able to afford. So they work with someone who's available but may not be the best at what they do. So those are the more most likely reasons why some of this stuff happens. Then if everything is done right, which doesn't all, it very rarely happens actually, but let's assume it all does, then sometimes it's purely a volume, surface, and ball issue. So sometimes with technique, they may have great technique, but maybe their equipment isn't dialed in the way it should be for the change in surface or the change in ball. Some players don't adjust their string tension, don't adjust their racket weight 
going from tournament to tournament, and many times they should. Because if you're going from Australia where it's hot and bouncy conditions, and then you come over and you play maybe a few tournaments on a slower hard court that doesn't bounce as high in cooler conditions, you definitely should have a different string tension and the weight of the racket should be adjusted as well. Um, so I do a lot of work in golf and baseball and they do a much better job with equipment in most of those sports in adjusting to what's happening. Um, so tennis, most of the players don't dial it in that specifically. They'll usually make some mild adjustments on string tension, some of the players, but some yeah. won't. But very few change their racket weights based on condition. Yeah. And going forward, they will be. This will be a change that in 10 years we'll look back and we'll say, why didn't the players 10 years earlier do this? Because we know a lot, but a lot of the times the players don't. So that's one of the issues. And then the third big one is, unfortunately, the tennis balls have a lot to do with this sometimes. If the balls fluff up um, a lot, and some of them do, um, you have to swing faster to get the same outcome. Um, so sometimes the balls wear out sooner than they should, and that is potentially a bit of a cause as well. So it's multi-factorial uh, as to why you may see some of these issues, but don't think the pros do everything perfectly. I think that being around them for nearly 20 years, I can tell you for certain that most of them don't take care of all the little details as well as they should. And it's not their fault necessarily. It's it's usually the people around them and the advice they're getting and things like that. You know, tennis players aren't meant to be knowledgeable in all these areas. They're meant to hopefully hire people that are knowledgeable in these areas and that can kind of help guide them through that process. Really fascinating stuff. There's so many factors that, that one can not get correctly and and then have injuries because of that i was curious with with the changing of the weights i mean you know there's some rackets these days that i guess you can insert weight into the, the like the butt cap is interchangeable with the weights and stuff but how do, how do most pros do it do they have like uh you know different rackets that are weighted differently or is it like the lead tape or how do they do it it's great. I mean, it depends. So, you know, some pros will, during the preseason, spend a lot of time testing out stuff, and they'll usually gravitate to a racket and weight and a distribution of weight, which is even more important. Is it head heavy, head light, evenly balanced? Where in the frame is the weight distributed? And then if they're a high-level pro, many of the times the actual racket companies will add the weight in the frames, and then that'll be their racket for the rest of the year, and they'll just send them frames that are based on those specs. Many pros, unless they're at the top top of the level, don't have that type of service. Many of them will have to add lead tape at certain parts of the frame where they want that to be distributed. There's a few companies that this is what they do for a living is they customize rackets. Many of you may be familiar with various companies that do that. However... Most of the time, a lot of it is based on player feel still. How does that feel? I felt like I could hit that one better or I could get the tip of the racket through the ball. Um, at the highest levels, what most of the good players and good coaches are, are looking for is they're looking for specific shots. Like, let's say a specific shot that you want to hit a cross-court backhand. Typically, to do that, you may want to have a little extra weight in one side of the racket because that'll allow the tip to come through on the backhand side better and that'll allow you to 
get the ball cross court sooner. So for certain matchups, even you may have a certain racket. And this is you know usually for players that are you know if you've got a certain matchup that you know you know the Nadal Federer matchup for example, there were certain patterns in that matchup that players everyone knew what the other player was trying to do, and if they could do it a little bit better, it would give them an advantage. I remember when when Andre Agassi used to play. Um, he had a specific shot that he knew if he could open up the court with his cross-court backhand, that would set up everything else in the point against a Sampras or, or, or one of his biggest competitors. So that was his most important shot. As much as we think of his return of serve or his forehand as being as big as it was, it was the cross-court roll backhand which had to be perfect. And his equipment was dialed in for that purpose. So those are the kind of little details that become really important the higher up you go in the game. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Awesome. Let's see. Pete, isn't one of the keys how quickly stored power can be released? Can the speed be increased in older individuals without increasing injury? Yeah, you're 100% right. It is about how quickly can you release whatever stored energy you have. That's why jumping and explosive movements plyometrics and power movements are recommended so much obviously the older you are the the more at risk you potentially are to something happening if you're going above and beyond what your body can handle so progressive overload is the number one thing you have to think about meaning that if you haven't done a lot of jumps or plyometrics or things like that don't go out there tomorrow and start doing a ton of jumps that's a bad idea what you would do, though, is whatever you did last week, you may add two, three, four jumps this week to see how the body responds. Do just enough, which is a, a, a little bit, um, to see how you feel the next day and track what you're doing. If you could do three jumps today, and that could be as simple as I'm just going to jump forward as far as I can and land on my feet. I'm not jumping up on a box. I'm not doing single leg anything. I'm just jumping forward. It could be six inches. It could be a foot. It doesn't have to be very far. Uh, it's just enough to see where are you today and then progressively overload. Every two days, instead of doing six inches today, in two days, you may try for a foot. If you can do a foot, you may try for a foot and a quarter. So everyone's different, especially as you're getting older. But the more explosive type movements you can do, the better it is for your tennis game. But even more so than that, there's so much research now that the older you are, the more benefits you get actually out of explosive type movements. They may not look super explosive if someone took a video of you. You still may be looking like you're moving not as fast as a 20-year-old, but it's the intent that is really important. The goal is to try to get that nervous system firing faster from the brain to the muscle. And there's hundreds of great studies that have shown how many benefits older adults get from doing some type of power or plyometric type movements. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Awesome, very important. Uh, Azair, uh, hello. Uh, recovery for adult rec players who don't have access to advanced techniques like the pros do. Yeah, so low cost, zero cost, basically um, options are Eat really well, first off. Uh, so a lot of protein in the diet um, is, is vital. 
Uh, make sure you drink a lot of fluids, a lot of water, a lot of fluids. Um, sleep eight, nine, ten hours, whatever you can get. So those three things are pretty much, you know, nearly free within your sort of lifestyle. Uh, and then the the fourth big one is how do we get more blood flow to the area? Uh, and the cheapest way of doing that is hot and cold showers. So if you've got a shower access and you've got hot water, you do an alternate shower protocol, which is a hot, cold shower protocol. So you do about a minute in hot water on the shower, as hot as you can handle comfortably. Don't burn yourself, but make it make it a hot shower. And then turn the hot water off and then go in the cold for 30 seconds. So normally I recommend do, you know, about a six to eight rotations of that. That's close to 10 minutes, give or take, uh, in the shower. And that will do a great job of pumping blood in and out. So the hot water, what it does is it helps, you know, bring blood to the area. And then the cold water, what it does is it keeps it there. So you get a vasodilation with the hot water. You get a vasoconstriction with the cold water. And then when you vasodilate again, so you turn the hot water back on, you get a huge rush of blood back in and out. So you get this continuous pumping type of action and you just move blood around very rapidly. And if you do those four things, you take care of a lot with pretty much no cost. You don't have to leave the house. You don't have to do anything different. That's, I would say, is the lowest cost, easiest protocol that really doesn't cost you anything. Wow. That is very important stuff. Love hearing that. Thanks a lot uh, for the that recovery protocol. It's, it's awesome. All right. I really hope you enjoyed this fun discussion with Dr. Mark Kovacs. A lot of great golden nuggets in there. So yeah, I definitely uh, enjoyed re-listening to it and I hope you did enjoy listening to it as well. If you did, then I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review for the show, and you can do that at tennisfiles.com slash Apple Podcasts with an S at the end, or on your favorite podcast app of your choice that you use uh, to listen to the show. I just find that Apple Podcasts is the biggest mover of the show in terms of its visibility and, and rankings and, and whatnot, which translates just to more people seeing it in general. So that is why I recommend Apple Podcasts, but you know, whichever one works for you works for me. Um, I also would like to leave you with a quote as I do at the end of every show. And this one is by Eleanor Roosevelt, a pretty famous person. And Eleanor said, if life were predictable, it would cease to be life and be without flavor. It's very true. What if you won every single tennis match? Oh, no. Or you knew what was going to happen. That's no fun. It's uh, more fun to cause an upset. And, you know, when a close one, you didn't think you would, things like that. So, yeah, enjoy that quote and has a lot of great meaning there. So uh, with that, really appreciate you listening to the show. I look forward to bringing you more content in the future, obviously. And just let me know if there's a particular subject area that you want to listen to or learn about. And I will try my best to make that happen, uh, whether it is immediately or, you know, in a few weeks or months. We'll see. So. All right, all the best to you. Thanks again. And we'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. This is your host, Mirabhan Aranchad, signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files Podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.